Good morning, Theo 102. We're so happy that you're here in the right place at the right time. Good work, everyone showing up on Wednesday. I like how we have chimes that kind of lead us into <laughs> our discussion today. Um, today, as you know, is Wednesday, but we are having what we traditionally have on Friday happen today here on Wednesday. We're going to have not only a discussion, we're also going to have a debate. I will um, intro that for you here in just a little bit, but a few announcements. One is your midterm is coming up. The data for the midterm and the study guide is being constantly updated on the website. I mean, the dates on the website, that's stable. The web or the study guide is growing. It is dynamic. It is being updated. Just as a reminder, we're going to be doing Monday, Wednesdays in Bauman for the next few weeks. So keep that in mind. We'll send you updates, but you're doing great. So I'm thankful that you are so on it. Um, just as a reminder for you, we're going to be doing questions as a part of our discussion today. One thing we noticed is sometimes it takes a little time to write things down. So my suggestion for you is, this is just a suggestion, not a command. Um, if you would like to ask a question or question, I'd encourage you to get a piece of paper out now um, and be thinking about what you hear this morning and be writing questions down and you can pass those to either side of the aisle. Um, all right, so I'm going to introduce today's debate to you before we do the creed, and it is this. What is the nature of hell? Two views. <coughs> so Dr. Doak gave you a lecture on Monday that dealt with the issue of judgment, so the judgment of God, and we want to talk about today the most controversial and really in some ways the most exciting and interesting aspect of the judgment of God, which is hell. What happens when we die as it relates to the concept of hell? So that's why you see that there in big letters. You're going to hear two acknowledged Christian views of hell, of, about the afterlife. Um, so there are lots of different ways of looking at hell. We're presenting two for you today. And um, we will invite your questions uh, after we have a little bit of back and forth, and we also will have a pastoral voice. Um, but first, let's, do, let's recite the creed together, and then I will introduce our panel to you. So, are you ready? We are adding, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead to the creed. We're almost through the entire thing, so we've come a long way. So we will, let, let's go for it. Are you ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Excellent work, you all. All right, so yeah, give yourselves a hand. That was really good. Um, all right, so it is my pleasure to introduce our panel to you all today. Uh, we have 
rolling chair, so I'm going to be really careful here. We have Dr. Brian Doak, Hebrew Bible scholar, who you heard from. Also, um, avid mountain climber, so he is really familiar with the idea of death, and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so he can talk a little bit about that. Um, we have Pastor Kenji Yokoi, who is pastor of International or Japanese International Baptist Church, and he also um, has an international aid ministry called Hope Japan. All around excellent guy. Thank you so much for being with us, Pastor. Yes. And finally, we have uh, Dr. Joseph Clare, Dean of the College of Christian Studies, <coughs> and also a fantastic um, theologian and historian, and also ethicist. And also, he um, has a little farm out not too far outside of town. Um, so he may or may not talk about that today. I'm not sure. Um, never know. But I, we like to share little fun facts, interesting things about um, our guests. So today, we're going to have two views of hell, two fundamentally Christian views of hell, and I want to invite, oh wait, our debate partners, did you all decide who you thought should go first? Go first. Okay, I agree. Dr. Joseph Clare, please give us your view. <laughs> Not necessarily your view, but your version of a view. Yeah, yeah. Good to be with you all. It's good to see you. I have the unenviable position um, of defending a very traditionalist view of hell as eternal conscious torment this morning against the Honorable Brian R. Doak, uh, doctor. I once, I co-taught a class with him one time, and I was in the hall at break, and I heard a student remarking after Dr. Doak had corrected their incorrect view of a text that we were reading. He said, yo, dude, you got doped in there. And so... My hope is that I don't get doped this morning. <laughs> I want to begin uh, with the words of Jesus, the most bracing image um, of the afterlife and heaven and hell in the New Testament for me, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, if you want to look at it later if you have your Bible. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people, one from the other, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, I was naked and you gave me clothing, I was sick and you took care of me, I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? When was it we saw you sick? were in prison and visited you, and the king will answer them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As Dr. Doak said on Monday, the Bible presents God as judge. Judge of history, judge of our lives, judge of the here and now. But it ultimately, in a stunning array of images, presents God as the final judge. A final analysis or reckoning in which God, indeed Jesus Christ, the one we've been talking about all these weeks, will be the arbiter in that final scene. We find it here in Matthew 25, you find it in Revelation 20, you find it all over the New Testament. The stunning thing about the final judgment is not just the scales of justice and the analysis of good and bad and rewards merited and punishment deserved, but you actually find that there's only two paths, two options, or two outcomes in the final judgment. Those apart from Christ will receive eternal rejection and punishment in hell, while those who are in Christ receive eternal blessing and welcome into the fullness of life with God, unquenchable joy. And it's that stunning fork in the road that Scripture makes clear. The bad outcome, hell, is depicted as some kind of eternal form of suffering. Conscious, eternal suffering. It's both depicted as a kind of physical or trans-physical pain, depending on what the resurrected body of the damned ends up being. And it's usually represented in terms of fire. You get the language of eternal fire in Matthew 25 that we just read. Hell, where the fire's never quenched in Mark 9. A Gehenna, a place of fire, a lake of fire in Revelation 19 and 20. And also a kind of interminable corruption where a worm eats and never dies. Those damned will be tormented day and night forever and ever, it says. But it's also depicted as a place of separation from God. The physical pain might even be outweighed by this idea of an eternal loss of God. A rejection or a separation from God. And you get that very clearly in 2 Thessalonians and elsewhere. And for those of you who have experienced tremendous physical pain in this life or someone you love has, you know that that pain threshold when you're getting up toward 8, 9, 10 nerve pain, it's just radical and unnerving. But you also know the kind of psychic, emotional pain of the soul has its own uh, kind of torment. If you've been in a bad relationship, done a bad thing, or been on the bad end, the receiving end in a bad relationship. It has its own kind of tragic suffering. The Bible depicts a kind of finality of the two outcomes, eternal unquenchable joy in heaven and this eternal separation and suffering from God. One minute, Dr. Clare. Perfect. <laughs> the finality, Jesus says in Matthew 12, is there are certain sins that will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And furthermore, the Bible seems to preclude the possibility that in the afterlife, the outcome will be changed or another decision will be made. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment. 
2 Corinthians 6.2 says we need to turn now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. There's an intuitive temptation given our understanding of God as judge, but also loving, compassionate God to want to lessen the blow, the severity of that thought of eternal suffering apart from God. But I say we need to resist this temptation, this temptation of a kind of hoped-for universalism that all shall be saved on the other side. Because I think it fundamentally flattens and defeats the message of the gospel. Ah, I will save this for the aftermath. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Claire. Thank you, Pastor. Dr. Doak? I have a friend who's a lawyer, and I texted him, and I asked him, what would happen, what would be my punishment if I was at Chapters, and I saw a five, five, five dollar bill of fiver right across, and when the cashier wasn't looking, I reached across and grabbed it. And I was caught on video. What would be the punishment? He said, he got back to me, he looked it up, he said, or current Oregon Penal Code says that um, I would definitely, you know, be taken into custody. Um, there would be no jail time immediately. I might even be able to escape it being on my record as a felony if I did a class. I would probably have to pay a fine of a couple hundred dollars maybe, court fees. It's possible at the very worst that at the judgment date I could get sentenced to 30 days in prison, but that's the maximum. All of this assuming it's a first offense and all of this assuming that I didn't actually assault anybody when taking the $5. Let's say though that upon doing that, let's say I really did that and let's say I got to court and I, and I know all this and I'm like, okay, okay, I totally did a bad thing, it was wrong, it was wrong. <clears throat> I know what the max punishment could be, and I'm ready for it. I'm ready to go to jail right now for 30 days. I got 500 bucks here. I'm ready to do community service. And the judge says, thank you. We've heard all the evidence. We got it. You've confessed. Thank you, Brian. Your penalty is a fine of $95 trillion. You will spend 10 years in prison, hard torture, waterboarding, and in solitary confinement. And at the end of the 10 years, you will be executed in front of your family. First offense. Eternal conscious torment as an idea of God's punishment in hell is not just the horrible moral equivalent of that kind of punishment. It's not just way worse. It's infinitely more unjust and unfair and not worthy of God. And I want to describe a little bit more about why I want to present this idea to you, an idea that I'm going to call hopeful universal salvation. Hopeful universal salvation as a contrast to eternal conscious torment ECT for short. Um, by the way, this view is, is crucially different from ECT, um, and it's perhaps not the majority view, but it has been suggested and embraced by respected and orthodox Christian theologians like Karl Barth and, and um, Hans Urs von Balthasar, arguably the most important Protestant and Catholic theologian, respectively, of the 20th century, as well as ancient luminaries like Origen of Alexandria and Greg, Gregory of Nyssa. In summary, here's what this view is. Christians have good reason to hope not to be sure, not to dismiss scripture, or to dismiss judgment, but Christians have good reason to hope that the hard and terrible price Jesus paid on the cross is not limited in its power, but that in fact it's going to save everyone eventually. And I want to distinguish this view, by the way, very quickly from what I'm going to call cheap open universalism, which would be the idea that, oh, we just die, it doesn't matter what we did, we just like leap right into Jesus' lap, and he pets us like a pet, and it's just like there's no consequence. I'm not arguing that, and I don't believe that, and I don't believe that that's an adequate Christian view, therefore I reject it. I want to suggest to you four ideas here, which I'm going to frame by, if you remember way back in our first semester, do you remember the Wesleyan quadrilateral, a way that Christians have made decisions for centuries? Scripture, reason, tradition and experience. First, scripture. 
Dr. Claire, I mean, I was listening to that story, and I was like, man, that is a good, that thing that Jesus said, that was awesome. Like, that is true. Like, that's a great scripture. But there are other scriptures, too, that he didn't mention, didn't have time to mention, that I think (coughs) present a very different picture. And if you want to read the Bible literally, I bet some of you are really into literal Bible reading, why don't you try some of these on for size? 1 Corinthians 15 has a passage that says things like this. I'm going to have to skip parts of it here for time. But he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. God is going to subject all things to himself, he goes on to say, so that God may be all in all. So this presents a philosophical, scriptural conundrum for us. How can all be made alive in Christ, literally all, and how can God be all in all, if we're into simple, literal readings of scripture, if in fact there is an eternal, conscious place where while you, let's say all of you are in heaven, yeah, you made it, but you get to know for eternity that like your brother's having his face burned off in a separate like existence that is going to go eternally along with you in your awesome place. It would seem that God isn't all in all in a situation like that unless you really double down on ECT and say, no, God actually loves it so much, he's just really into the idea of torturing people for eternity and it's actually good and that is God being all in all. So you can ask yourself like how that sits with you, but not just how you emotionally feel about it, how you reconcile that with a text like this, which suggests that God will be all in all. Romans 5.18 actually says the same thing, uh, similar thing. Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Now, Paul was a great writer in the New Testament. He said a lot of things. He had space and time. He wrote really long letters to actually qualify that if he wanted to, and he didn't. He said all. Why did he say all? First John 2, 1, Jesus died not just for us, the author there says, but for the sins of the whole world. Maybe Jesus did it, but it didn't work. What are we to do with that? I don't think any of these passages, by the way, are, are a slam dunk, but I think they're worth thinking about in terms of our, the afterlife. We have other ideas, too. I mean, ideas like even like annihilation, the idea that those who die will just simply cease to exist. Um, maybe Matthew 10, you know, Jesus speaks of the wicked being destroyed both body and soul in hell. So there's an alternative, which is not everyone being in heaven with God, but it's not eternal conscious torment either. So there's scripture and more can be said. Reason, I offered my little opening volley there. One of the most important legal and moral and ethical principles in scripture is an eye for an eye. Eternal conscious torment violates the principle of an eye for an eye. Oh man. You can only sin so much in this life. You could live 90 years, you could be the worst human possible. Let's say you get punished for 180 years, 280 years, 580. Eternity? Was God just kidding about the eye for an eye thing? Or was God offering us some totally out there, bizarro, imperfect system and then he has something that we basically can't even comprehend on the side of that? Tradition, a quick note here to say that although ECT has been something of a normative Christian view, there's a notable lineage of those who have dissented from it. I mentioned a few, I'll also mention John Stott, maybe not a household name, but an evangelical conservative Christian of impeccable qualities in the community, embraced annihilationism at least, which is a very different idea. Finally, I'll just say here experience in my closing 10 seconds. This issue involves the way that we talk to each other and practice evangelism and forces us to ask serious questions about what is salvation? Is it an instrumental, commercial, and and I think immature view that it's just basically a ticket out of hell? All right. What is this life for? Uh, That's what I want to ask. Thank you, professors. Um, We now will have, yes, 
Oh, no. Thank you. you uh, we now up. have a five-minute rebuttal session yeah. where you all get to talk with each other, and then I'm going to invite uh, our residential pastor to reflect on this pastorally, and then we're going to talk with you all. So five minutes. Dr. Claire, you, you started on a very, you started on a note which was a little, I don't know, it wasn't the note I thought you were going to start on. You were kind of softening it like, oh, I've got this unenviable view of presenting this hard but sad truth. If you believe that eternal conscious torment is true, why don't you just embrace it? Why not just say, why not just own it? Say, actually, it's great. It's awesome. It's God's way. I love it. I even worship God in the face of it. It's not, it's not unenviable. You have the enviable position in your view, right? I think the idea that fellow creatures made in the image of God are going to suffer interminably in any way is not something I delight in, for starters. For second, after reading Matthew 25, don't you feel a little uneasy about your own eternal destination, given the kind of vision of justice and faith and repentance in that passage? But for, for starters... I'm convinced by you, Dr. Doak, but I'd rather be convinced by what I find in the scriptures and train my reason from, from what I see there. And so for starters, I agree we should hope for the salvation of all, but the New Testament makes it clear that that hope should manifest in urgent preaching and appeal to people now, not just to get out of jail free or escape the fire, but to turn in love and faith and repentance to a God who is holy and loving, for starters. Second, I think you have to recognize that there's something about the gravity of sin in the face of a holy God and the gravity of what Christ did at the cross that's connected to the gravity of our understanding of hell. And I think that we easily underestimate the glory of the cross when we start to think of hell in these terms. Third, I just want to say this quickly because I want you to respond. If you hope for the universal salvation of all after this life, you have to go all the way. You have to picture yourself around the campfire forever singing Kumbaya with Satan at your left hand and Hitler at your right. And there you are. The redemption found its way toward everybody, but that presents such problems for free will and the free will response that God wants from creatures it's sort of insane what bigger puzzles it opens up. And finally, I think it's just a fundamental confusion about the relationship between time and eternity, especially your last image of 180 years for, 100, for 90. That's just like, I think it shows the limitation of our grasp of what the eternal is in relation to the temporal. Compelling, a compelling 24 <laughs> points there. Okay, how am I gonna come, <laughs> how am I gonna come back in? Um, about the cross, about Jesus' sacrifice. Part of this, I, I agree with you that there are package deals here. Part of the ECT view actually comes in a package deal with penal substitution as the correct atonement view. If you don't agree that penal substitution is the correct atonement view, there's an open space here to see Jesus' work as meaning many different things. And I don't know if either of us, would, by the way, would go in for something like the moral exemplar view. Just like Jesus was cool and kind of was participating with it. I mean, it's much more serious than that. And I want to emphasize again that no, it's not just sitting with Satan and Hitler totally unredeemed in the end. I mean, I don't know, there's a little bit of mystery here in my view. I'm not, claiming, I'm not claiming that we would know for sure that this is the case precisely because I'm convicted by passages like Matthew 25. What I am suggesting is that there are other options here. Yes, I feel convicted by that, that scripture, but um, there are other haunting passages on a very different note. Maybe it's the case, maybe it's the case that um, a hopeful universal salvation view doesn't take evil and sin seriously enough, but... Maybe it's the case that eternal conscious torment doesn't take God's goodness seriously enough. And we know, in fact, that God overrides people's free will in various ways. I don't know. I'm not, I love free will, but I'm not as bothered by that overriding But I don't you think God's goodness and justice co-penetrate or connect in some way? So why put love and goodness against 
or goodness and justice against one another. I mean, an expression of justice is things getting what they deserve, things being put in their proper place. And it says, like Psalm 96.10, that's that famous passage of judgment you allude to. One more minute. He will judge the peoples with equity. So can't you imagine that maybe we don't know what equity is? Maybe our skewed vision of human justice is so skewed that we can't imagine, like, Maybe there's different levels of consciousness or different types of suffering or things like, I would rather doubt my own reason and the inscrutability and go with the inscrutability of God's justice than try to fit God into the false consolation uh, trophy view. That's, um, that's totally fair, although it's also the case that you should interrogate how much choice you actually have in coming up with the view that you have. The way you're talking about it is as though you think it's inevitable. I'm just suggesting it's actually not inevitable. So it's not just about doing that. I want to do the same thing that you're talking about but you're acting like that view is just, it, it's like it just came down from heaven fully formed. It how hasn't. Do, how do you we're think meaning-making about it. How do you think the New Testament urgency about convert, repent, stay faithful yeah. under persecution while you're being killed for your faith, it matters. Yeah. How do you square that with this idea that we're all on the same track anyway? Yeah. Ah, I'm about uh, to get timed okay. out. No, but let's know. Wait, let's, no, 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 no. Dr. Right. Doak, Dr. Claire and Doak. We're going to stay up here. Yeah. Uh, uh, I want to invite you all to sit down for a moment because, oh. um, Pastor Kenji, I would love to hear your perspective. <coughs> you, we've just heard some, some I, I really enjoy your academic shade that you throw at each other. It's just fantastic. <laughs> you all should come to academic conferences. It gets even more intense and passive aggressive. Um, it's wonderful. <coughs> all right. But we want to hear from a pastor. Can you reflect a little bit on what you've heard? I mean, you deal with you minister to people who are in real life, they're facing this question in real life circumstances. What do you, can, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts about what you heard today? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you for having me again and thank you for allowing me to be a part of this wonderful debate. Um, <laughs> I've been under a lot of teachers, but these guys are, are really amazing. Um, from a pastoral perspective, I've been pastoring for about 20 years full time. And uh, recently I conducted a funeral where the mother sadly uh, passed away while, while giving birth. And uh, she had been to our church once, had heard the gospel, and um, we actually performed the funeral. So these questions are very, very real, and they really touch um, deeply my heart. Um, both views, I can understand where um, they're coming from and um, relate with both. Did you need me to elaborate more, or? Well, no, I, yes, I would like you to elaborate a little I, um, bit more. Yeah. Um, I believe my position is more in line with Dr. Claire's, but my hope is more in line with Dr. Doak's. <laughs> if that's true, then you, then you buy my position. <laughs> that's that's d- difficult to say affirmatively. We're not debating. I don't want to debate you, Dr. Doak. I, I definitely do not. <laughs> I am not a professor by any means, but um, um, I, hope, I hope that this mother did enter eternal life. Mm. That's my prayer. I see in scripture, in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always. He commands us to go and make disciples, people who believe and follow after him. And um, I hope that there is the hopeful, universal salvation for all. I really do. Um, And I can see where 
other believers might hold that position where it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish but have, but have everlasting life, or that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, or, or, or other passages that, that seem more encompassing, all-encompassing. But um, I do see um, God commanding us to go out and share the gospel, and I know that's not for no reason at all. So while I believe more in this position, I do hope in Dr. Dokes as well. Right. Thank you so much, Pastor. I can see, yeah, thank, let's thank, thank them before we get to you all. I can see that we have questions, which is a really good thing. So, Abby, are you our question wrangler today? Excellent. Uh, we actually have a lot of written questions. We wanted to start with this one. The student asked, did God create hell? And if so, is he present there? And does he suffer with the people there? Wow. Dr. Doak, Dr. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, this, everything and everything that is, is created by God, it seems like a clear message from the Bible. You get this mysterious sense where Jesus has been crucified, died, buried, descended to the dead. So you get this, this sense that he's gone down and preached freedom to the captives in this land of the dead. I mean, we're, this is a whole series of lectures that we need to get into a biblical cosmology in the afterlife. But yes, uh, God's in charge of it. God punishes, but also mysteriously, it seems like a big part of the punishment is that you lose God and that there's, there's this kind of free will still there of like you're turning toward yourself away from God, away from the good, deeper into your own sort of sequestered vision of reality and love and worship of yourself, and that that's part of the punishment. And so you get this. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce plays with this, um, this image from Augustine that hell actually, it is a place, but it's like a movement away from God and away from the good and away from being. So it's like a, a movement away from reality into more and more shadowy, crappy existence because you're moving away from God. And so it begs this question of, is there free will in the afterlife? Do you continue? Is hell a, a place where the door is locked from the inside? And Lewis starts to play with these thoughts. But the idea is that, yeah, it's a place, and God does punish, but mysteriously, it's a movement away from him, and it's a kind of strange self-inflicted torment, potentially. I totally agree that we can move away from God and that free will is involved. Although, has anyone read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Have you read that before? What's, the what's one of the final scenes in The Great Divorce? C.S. Lewis has someone running from hell and actually escaping through their own choice into heaven, or at least toward it. it Th that's an amazing scene, right? And so C.S. Lewis actually imagined a world in which, as Dr. Glar said, yes, the door is locked from the inside and free will continues to exist, but that's something different than eternal conscious torment with an exact decision after which there will be no other decisions. It, that's typically a Catholic view, we might say, of purgatory or something like that, where those who are on their way get purified and it takes time. Like I said, no one's just jumping into God's lap, right. okay? But, and, and I'm not a Catholic and so I'm not here to promote that view. I'm here to promote judgment, as I did in my lecture, that that's definitely real and I think that starts in the life that we're in now and I don't think we should overplay that aspect of it. Um, and you know, the Bible and, and our tradition is, this is mysterious stuff. I mean, Dr. Claire used the word mysterious there and I think that that's a helpful word for us to at least come toward an understanding together that this involves some mystery for sure. All right, we, I know we have a lot of questions, so I want to get to another one. Go for it, Abby. Um, we have another really good written one asking about the relationship between baptism and eternal life, and it says, after you've been baptized, is there anything you can do to separate you from your eternal life? Good question. Go for it, man. 
Yeah, I think in basically every tradition that practices physical water baptism as infants or adults, there's an understanding of growing in grace and growing in discipleship and clinging and abiding in Christ and gets into this mysterious idea of can you lose your salvation? The answer would be uh, the baptism was somehow inauthentic or the proclamation didn't line up with your heart in adult baptism, so you didn't lose anything. It was never there. In children's baptism, you get into this mysterious thing of like, does the baptism itself wipe out sin as this kind of, not magic cure, but shot of grace even apart from your will as an infant? I mean, it's just a, it's just a huge question. But again, I think if you stay with the scriptures, there's just a strong exhortation to have faith, repent, and in the book of Acts, be baptized, and then keep going, <laughs> keep believing, keep repenting, stay faithful, even in the face of death. I mean, it's the sense that, like, uh, who, who can give the final analysis of you had it and you lost it? It doesn't really matter. You've got to cling and abide now. I come, from, I come from church traditions that, are, that see baptism and even communion as things that are more symbolic even having said that, so it's like you could be baptized a hundred times or whatever, and it just might not take. It might have never been authentic, as Dr. Claire said. So I'm not, I don't come from a tradition where I connect baptism to salvation in some deeply mysterious, you know, one-to-one way. I bet, I bet God has all kinds of situations and weird exceptions and things that he does. Having said that, I don't know, when I was baptized, that was a really special moment, and I, I feel like that was part of my salvation. And when I took the elements last Sunday, like, I felt like something was actually changed in me too, so I, I sort of double, double cross myself here. When I say that it's just a symbol, nothing's ever just a symbol. Um, Pastor, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. That's a really good question. It's, um, it's a debate that continues to this day, right? Can you lose your salvation? Is it, and, and different, um, from a church standpoint, different denominations have different positions. And um, I think sometimes, this, I'll, I'll, t- I'll bring it from a different angle, but I think sometimes we, 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 um, we want to see how close we can get to the edge before falling off, that kind of idea. But um, my approach would be more like um, Dr. Claire's, like, pursue Christ, chase after him. And, and when you fail, just fall on that same grace that first caught you. It's still there. Mm-hmm. He is so gracious. And I feel like sometimes we forget we're so hard on ourselves. When, uh, when Christ does not condemn us, mm. there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. All right, next question. Um, this next question has to do with hell as punishment, and this student is asking, is <coughs> hell actually God's punishment, or is it the result of our own choice? Like, did we choose hell, and therefore, like, this is the result of us and not of God? Good question. I will say that whatever judgment or punishment God has for us, whether it's a traditional hell like ECT or something else that I assume is real punishment that we have to go through to, for justice to be real and to know what our sins have truly meant to those around us and to ourselves, that it involves an element of self-punishment, that it is something that we chose. I, you know, and I've been in enough situations in my own life where you say to yourself, oh, if people could choose in the afterlife, let's say they could totally choose. You get thrown in your hell, you're like, ah, there's no way I want this. I would definitely reject that and go to God, and it would seem obvious. I don't know, though. Sometimes I look at myself, and I think maybe I really do choose repeatedly and ongoingly things that actually do hurt me because I am that proud and that arrogant. Uh, That could be something that I would have to work on for, like, a billion years. Like, (laughs) I I can literally see that in myself. I totally, Machiavelli has this great line in his letters where he's like, hey, uh, even if I end up in hell, you know, because he has this kind of strange relationship with Christianity in Florence, 
It's like, it's fine because I'll have, I'll be hanging out with Socrates and whoever else. He like paints it as, and again, Machiavelli is a very arrogant dude. And I think it, it's a reminder that if hell is just an external kind of punishment of just this bludgeoning from this big divine wrathful being, there's still like this little reserve of pride that you can have where you can hide in your own self-satisfaction or this is unfair or... Yeah, like at least I beat the tyrant. At least I beat, yeah, Yeah. exactly. But the idea that it actually is internal and there's a recognition that you lost the most precious thing in the universe and that you truly had been so self-involved that you missed out on what was really going on in the universe, that's, that's a deeper punishment in some ways than just the external figure. I mean, it gets into physical, spiritual pain, but yeah, I mean, it brings up lots of questions, but I think you, the traditional view is that it's both and in a mysterious way of external, internal, yeah. What do you think, Pastor? Um, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. I think it's twenty-five forty-one. Jesus talks about hell being a place of punishment Really not for us. It wasn't designed for us. It was designed for the, for the devil yeah. and his angels, it says in Scripture. And it says in Second Peter 3, 9, I think it is, that, it's, that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Thank you. That's Thank good. You. I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, I'm Bailey, and my question is, like, going back on Monday, you were talking about judgment, so I'm wondering, like, in pop culture today, there are tons of stories of judgment day being bad for everyone, everyone's scared, everyone's going to be punished. Do Christians like this or don't like this sense? It's like, oh, no one's going to go to heaven, everyone's going to be punished, or... Mm-hmm. Do Christians, are Christians okay with this since most stories are like not, are like in judgment days by being brought by aliens or like false ghosts, like in <laughs> Ghostbusters or something? Yeah. Yes. yes, I love yeah. this question yes. so much. Thank you. Excellent. Oh, awesome. I mean, I think in one sense, I brought up a book in the lecture, Joel, and, and Amos also has an image like this. Like when we think of that term judgment day, I, thi- I think there is a Christian sense that Judgment Day is something that's coming on all of us, and it's somber. Not just like some people on Judgment Day are just like, yeah, I'm totally free. Like, everything turned out perfect, you know, because we're not perfect like that. Mm -hmm. So I assume that no matter what I've done or haven't done, that like I have to pass through that, I have to come to the judgment seat of Christ. And so that idea, like the solemnity of that moment, I think does make sense with the kind of film idea you're talking about where it's like Judgment Day is everyone. But even in those films you talk about, there's an aftermath, though. It's not just over. I mean, imagine a film like that, like, Judgment Day, the aliens come. It's like 30 minutes in, the whole world is wiped out, roll credits. Like, it, you know, those films don't go like that, though, and neither does the Christian story. So in that sense, no. I, I think, absolutely, there's kind of a popular imagination. It's true in the ancient world, too. Just this sense that, like, there's a reckoning for your life, and the good and the evil will be weighed, and your works, and you get bits of that. In the scripture, I think the big difference with the final judgment with Jesus as judge, you have a crucified judge, um, is there's a radical equality of human beings before the judge. I mean, Paul says in Romans 2, like, woe unto you if you're starting to do the judgment now and you yourself are exactly the same because you're not going to escape. And I think the biblical doctrine is actually pretty powerful in terms of its equalizing us as human beings. Like mysteriously, the Bible says that, yeah, 
I am not a serial killer um, like Ted Bundy. I have not done things with like dramatic social consequences for other people in the same way. But the Bible seems to have the suggestion that the same interior mechanism of the will of rebelling against God and turning toward oneself and self-satisfaction is actually analogous in all of our little sins that we think of as so small. And so when we look around and judge other people, we ought to be careful uh, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought because there's this great common humanity sort of theme around the judgment that makes the common sort of redemption in Christ all the more beautiful. So I think this idea of like, everybody will get what they deserve, and if you lived in this privileged, you know, good context with a good education and paid your taxes, you'll be better off than those horrible wretches, you know, down in uh, barrios killing people. Yeah, no, Paul says. We all have sinned, and there's this wild kind of equality of humanity before God that sort of illuminates the possibility of redemption through the cross for all of us. All right, well, I think that we could ask um, many more questions, but it's almost time uh, for us to switch gears here. I want to invite Pastor Kenji Yokoi to leave us with um, your thoughts from a, a, a pastoral perspective. How would you send us out today? We've talked... This week we've considered the judgment of God. Today we've considered two views on hell. How can you send us out as a pastor today? You probably heard this story maybe before, but their little, little child Monday morning goes and tells his classmates about the story of Jonah that he heard on Sunday. And the teacher mockingly says to him, that's impossible. Although a whale is a large creature, its throat is very narrow, can't swallow an entire human being. And but this little child says, no, no, it happened, it happened. And the teacher says, no, it didn't happen. And the child says, well, when I go to heaven one day, I'm gonna ask Jonah. And the teacher says mockingly, well, what if Jonah's not there? And then the student says to the teacher, well, then you ask. <laughs> it's, it's, my point is this though, my point is this. It's easier to <coughs> joke about hell than actually really talk about it and discuss it. And, um, I really appreciated the debate here and wrestling and grappling with these difficult subjects. But um, if we truly are to care about people and love people, which is our mission in life, love God, love people, it's clear Jesus says that. We can't do that outside of caring for their eternal salvation. And I hope Dr. Doak's point of view is correct. Dr. Clare, I'm more alongside of Dr. Clare's as I may mention, but I think our job is to just simply teach scripture, love people the best we can, tell them both positions. But um, I believe that scripture, if you look at it, it will outline for you. Um, this will cause me to take my position very strongly, but but it believes in a, it, it, it writes about a hell in the same reality as it writes about heaven as well. It's easier to believe in a heaven because it's pleasant, but not so easy to believe in a hell because it's so unpleasant. But um, let's go out and share the gospel with people. That's what Jesus commanded us. Thank you, Pastor. Can we uh, thank the rest of our panel today?